This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. How long will you turn your face away? How long Hi, my name is Clarissa Mall. I'm the wife and widow of author and former CT editor Rob Mall. Rob died in 2019 when he fell to his death in a hiking accident in Mount Rainier National Park. My name is Daniel Harrell. I'm editor-in-chief at Christianity Today. My wife Dawn died of pancreas cancer in 2019 on April 21st, Easter Sunday. This is Surprised by Grief, and we're exploring just all of the ways uh, grief is walking alongside us in these days after losing our spouses. Today we're going to talk about kids, and I was remembering after my wife's diagnosis, which just hit us like a ton of bricks out of nowhere, coming home and talking to our daughter who was 11 years old and deciding uh, early on, really that very day, that we were just going to say the truth. And so we told her what had happened in this diagnosis. And her first question was, are you going to die? And Dawn's response was, not today. So we took that first step, and over the course of the next two months, our daughter went with us to chemotherapy and sat in on visits from hospice, and we sought to include her in everything, which uh, the morning when Dawn died, our daughter came down and, and said goodbye. And I think all of that was important, and in the aftermath, I I think as we've talked about it and revisited some of that, it's been a connection point for us, a place that we can both recognize our loss and grief together, though the journey that each of us has taken, me and my daughter, has been surprisingly different. There hasn't been the kind of uh, similarity, I think, that I presumed her experience and mine have diverged in pretty significant ways. Yeah, yeah. When the chaplain came to tell me that Rob had died, that experience is so shocking that the sudden and traumatic loss that there's not the kind of anticipatory grief that it sounds like you guys got to do together in those two months before Don died. For us as a family, it was boom, there was no avoiding the truth of mm -hmm. what had happened. And pretty quickly, I decided that I needed to let those moments and the subsequent days of grief be my kid's story. I pretty quickly became the gatekeeper for them, trying to help them learn to set boundaries around their story so that they could share or not share as they wanted to. And I've told them, if you don't ever want to talk about the moments that you learned of dad's death, you don't have to. That is sacred and it's for you. And I think that's part of what catastrophic loss looks like for children. It's very much about helping them to learn to navigate with this massive earth-shattering reality. And kids are super resilient, but I think it begins pretty early on 
in traumatic loss with a recognizing that their reality has changed in a moment and they're going to need a lot of space to process that over the years to come as they change developmentally. And that whether they choose to process that externally or internally, either one of those is okay. Hmm. Did you ever find that you needed anything from your kids early on in grief? I'll ask it because of this. I mean, I found that, you know, because my daughter and I grieved in such different ways that there was an isolation that sat in for me that surprised me. It's this odd reality. I think I recognized as now being a parent by myself that this relationship with my daughter was going to have to be brand new in so many ways, but somehow like I wanted my daughter to have some, I don't know, sympathy on me. I don't know if that's what I want to say, but, (laughs) but you know, I wanted her to kind of like, uh, you know, appreciate how hard this was going to be for me to take care of her. And for us to kind of get on this same page. And, I, and it's it's taken some time for me to settle into this space where, no, I'm the parent and the adult. She's the kid. And what we're doing, to your point, is different. And I both have to respect that, but also parent that. Well, I had a widow friend early on who was a sudden loss widow and left with three children. And She described it to me. She said, after my husband died, it was like my kids and I became this sphere. Like we were all turned in on one another in this beautiful way. Like we had experienced this thing that galvanized us, that brought us together in a way that the world just couldn't get inside anymore. Mm. And I certainly felt that way after Rob died that no one else except for the people who had been there at that moment where we had learned the news, no one could understand what that felt like. There's this intimacy that nobody can break into that and live that with you. And yet after that, you watch your kids go back into the world and you go back into the world and you remember, oh yeah, before this cataclysm occurred, we were our own people (laughs) and we had our own intentions and goals and interests and there was something more. And you see your kids grow and change, I think, especially because kids are growing and developing so quickly in those elementary and junior high and high school years. You see them change from year to year and you realize that in some ways your grief might leave you behind that you're grieving differently and and suddenly we're not all running at the same pace. There can be moments where you're all like, hey guys, wait up for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't I have anybody to run with? And I think that's just part of the nature of parenting when you're alone, that you are alone and your kids are, they are not your partners in this. And that's a good and healthy thing that they're not your partners in this, even though you're intimately connected by your loss. But yeah, and it's good and healthy. And as I mentioned before, that all of these, you know, decisions now fall on me and what you've been used to being able to process with your spouse in such intimate fashion is now left to you. And the way that your kids respond to you by yourself versus how they would have responded to you as mom and dad you know, is different too. And I've, I've just found myself not only renegotiating all of that, but also finding myself on these places of insecurity. Like, you know, I have to do this, but can I do this? You know, (laughs) 
Uh, it's just so scary some days. Well, you know, we're both parents of a child of a different gender. So I wonder when you go out and about with your daughter, how do you feel like you're perceived as a solo or single parent, depending on you know what you sense people are, people's perception is? How do you think that falls on people's ears and eyes, and you know what are they thinking when they see you and her together? Well, I mean, I'm sure the first thought is, you know, where's the mother? I think that when people though find out, you know, that I'm a widower, there is a, you know, kind of pity and and sympathy because of the perceptions people have about how men can parent their daughters. But I think for me, probably the hardest adjustment in the world is her emerging, you know, womanhood as an adolescent young person and just the natural proclivity she has to become her own person and how it is to help her walk through that as a dad with no mom present. Gosh, you have four children, Clarissa. How's it been for you? Well, I think I know that there are complexities to why women are single parents, you know, whether by necessity or choice. But I felt like I was a widow. I was not a single mom. For me, it's just been a hard... Sometimes I feel like I need to say that my husband is dead so that people will take me seriously as a parent. Like There are moments where I wonder if people are thinking, how did she get all those kids? And why can't she keep control of them or, you know, sort of criticisms that are lodged at moms on playgrounds. Um, (laughs) You know, what's she doing? Why do they have peanut butter on their face? And the reality is I'm just trying to make a go of it here. And this may be partly because of the sort of mommy wars and that culture that's out there too. There's a lot of criticism women to women about their roles and about how they do their parenting. And I think that happens with parenting too, as a solo mom, that, there's just a lot of cultural noise and criticism that it's hard to cut through. It's hard to release myself from those expectations sometimes and just do this thing the best I can. Do you find that telling people Rob died overall helps or hinders? Well, I hate to do it, honestly. I I feel like it's this trump card that I don't want to play. You know, I don't want to have to pull out the be nice to me because I am a widow. (laughs) I don't like it at all. It makes me feel really awkward. I'd rather people just take me seriously for who I am now and who I present to them. And that's part of what I'm trying to teach my kids too, that, you know, you don't need to share your whole story. You don't need to say why your dad isn't at your baseball practices. That's okay. You don't have to tell them that. And if there's a moment where you feel that you need to, then that's okay too. But how much of your story you share is within your control alone. Yeah, I like that. I think my daughter would probably be much more reticent than me. I I, I confess I love the trump card. Um, <laughs> and not so much as an excuse as much as I feel like I just need you to relate to me knowing this. Because I just can't stop thinking about it sometimes. And I agree that it can't be used exploitively. But man, I tell you, there's just this sense of, I need you to understand me because this is hard. And so I'm just going to tell you. So that's interesting. So, you know, we both asked our kids a little bit before this episode, kind of some things that 
that they'd like yeah. uh, to share? Like, <laughs> like, what have your kids said that's cool to share? Oh, well, it was really interesting how they talked about what was appropriate for adults to say or do in relation to kids and grief. Like, they didn't like it that people hugged them and gave them what they call pity smiles. (laughs) And I'm sure your daughter could relate to this, the kind of look that says, your life's going to be so hard now that your dad's not here. And when I talked to my kids, a lot of it was about boundaries, about adults feeling like they needed to sort of like lay their grief on kids. And that comes from a a misconception, I think, that adults have that kids grieve the same way that adults do. You know, Mm -hmm. this holiday is really hurting me. It's hard for me to notice that he's not here. So therefore, it must be feeling like that for you. And I think for adults, when you're relating to a child who is grieving, a lot of it is about letting them take the lead and becoming a student of that child and being attentive to what that child needs. So if the kid doesn't want to talk about it or doesn't seem sad, not assuming that that means that they're hiding their grief or that they're not processing it in a healthy way, but realizing that, oh, wow, if they're not having some outward grief manifestations, that may actually be really developmentally appropriate for their age. And that may mean that they're really on a healthy trajectory as they process their loss. So kind of letting the kid teach the adult, I guess, what they need and creating space where a child can say what they need if they need to say it. Yeah, no, I like that. I think that my daughter would share that aversion to being singled out. You know, there's already so much of that that's just terrorizing to kids who are in adolescence anyway. And to be pitied and seen as as different is a big fear for yeah. her. But one thing that did surface that I did want to share was I think it's been important for her that I have trusted her. I've articulated that a lot, that I trust her to make good decisions, that I trust her to do the right thing. And it's kind of grown out of this recognition that, you know, our our family has a different shape now. And I guess I just appreciated that she articulated that. Now, again, I know as a parent that can come back to bite me because, you you know, just trust me, dad. Um, (laughs) but, But... But I think the way she, you know, she meant it, that was the sense that I trusted that she understood where we are and that the responsibility that I was training her to take and that she has exhibited in her schooling and that she has proven herself trustworthy. And it struck me that that's what she chose to articulate. Yeah, well, there's a a huge maturing process that happens for our kids as they are confronted with death and they have to process the finality of life, the fragility of life. I mean, that's just, that's a lot for a kid to take in. And yet they're so capable. I think we often don't give our kids enough credit for how capable they are to process big things and to process them with a lot of insight and grace. One of the things that I've done in the last year and a half since Rob died is to try to give my kids a lot of really physical opportunities to manifest their grief or to process their feelings. When we went to visit his grave, I said, okay, I want to get some decorations. I want to decorate dad's grave. I want people to know he was loved. When they walk into the cemetery, I want them to see there's stuff all over that grave. So somebody must have really been paying attention. And we went to the store and 
my son chose a Hawaiian tiki man that was on the patio clearance in the store. And he decided that was the thing he wanted to stick (laughs) at the grave. My daughter found a carved pig with a welcome sign. And she stuck that in the ground next to the grave. And You know, there might be people who would say, oh, my goodness, that's so crass. Um, You know, that is not respectful to the dead. Hmm. But, you know, if he were alive, that's the kind of thing she would have bought him for Father's Day and honoring their wisdom. And, you know, they love him. And what would I buy for dad that he would love? I'd buy him a funny Hawaiian tiki man from the patio clearance at the store. That's what I'd buy him because it would make him laugh. And not seeing that as childish, but seeing that as wise, I think is an important part of validating their journey and letting them grieve in ways that are appropriate for that moment and let them express the things that are really deep in their hearts that maybe they can't actually say with words. You know, I think one of the things that when we parent after loss, there's this heightened sense of, in some ways, a fear of death, fear of illness. Like, what if I get sick? Who's going to be there for them? How's that going to look? And I wonder if that's something that you and your daughter have processed together. And how did did you talk about that reality with her in a way that was honest, but also could offer her some comfort? Yeah, it's come up several times where, you know, if I've gotten sick or something's emerge, she's like, you're not going to die, are you? I mean, she says that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My kids have said the same thing. You know, one of the things that we've talked about that I was surprised by was, you know, when a person dies, how to handle their affairs if, you know, things aren't in order. And there was a, a revisiting of my will after Dawn died. And, and so my daughter and I sat down and talked about that some And to my surprise, she wanted to change the whole thing. You know, the plans that we had made for her care in case I was to die were were plans that she just wasn't on board with. But I was a little, you know, surprised by her input there that she had some thoughts that we hadn't, you know, considered when we had first put all of that together. But aside from that, you know, we we don't have the good fortune of living near any family. And it's it's left us, I think, with some questions about not only what happens if I were to die soon, but more to the point, just in the the day-to-day life, like who's going to play that next tier role? Like, you know, for a growing young woman with, you know, an older dad as a parent, there's a lot of questions that dad's not always equipped to answer. And, you know, we don't have that access, that immediate access and relational intimacy with aunts and uncles and grandparents that we might enjoy if we lived closer and she had grown up in their proximity. So all of that, you know, it's not just our relationship, but it's our relationship to our community. Like, who is your family now has been a big question for me. And I think that most people don't realize that. I think that all of this lies beneath the surface of what it means to lose someone. You know, I think people just assume you sort of go back to your life, but the reality of loss is that it 
shakes the foundations. I mean, everything, those very basic questions of identity and belonging, and it does it for your kids too. And so at the one time you're trying to wrestle with those questions yourself as an adult and as a grieving spouse or parent or friend, and then you're also trying to help a child who is wrestling with those questions too. And it looks different for each child where one will feel ready to venture forth into something new, another holds back. It's all that one step forward, two steps back. And and that's kind of movement for all of us doing that together. And it makes me think of the people in the costumes, those giant dragons at Chinese New Year parades. And you've got all these people underneath and they've got to somehow move the dragon together down the street. And I feel like that with my family a lot of times, like, okay, we all have to make this move, guys. So um, we're going to coordinate our rhythms as best as we can, remembering that there are five people underneath this thing that have to work together somehow with their own intentions and their own goals and desires. It's a lot of work to parent when you're doing that through grief. That's for sure. Man, five people. That's just, that just shuts me down right there talking about five, um, my little one. So yeah, um, I've been surprised by my lack of confidence. You know, I think when Dawn was alive, there was a, a sense of, all right, you know, we're in this together and, you know, we can bounce things off of each other. But I think, you know, since she's died, I, I find myself in these places some days where I'm like, you know, I'm responsible for this human yes. and, you know, who am I to do this and what am I doing? I mean, yeah. It's, oh yeah. <laughs> but I, I was really appreciative of my grief counselor who really pressed onto me the to embrace the fact I do know my daughter and mm-hmm. love my daughter and that really my call is to love my daughter. And that's where my confidence has to come from. Yeah, you can do this. And I think that we are more capable than we give ourselves credit for. I mean, the fact that we got out of bed the next day after our person died. That's big. And yeah. that our, we allow our kids' lives to propel us forward. That's a big deal. But the truth is that we're all resilient. We can all do this. And the growth that happens after loss, if we're open to it, we have the tools and we develop the tools that we need. And there's a cultural narrative that kids who experience some kind of loss or trauma have to fight back, but it doesn't take superhuman tenacity to be able to recover from loss. I think it takes intentionality. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of support, but you don't have to be this sort of Superman material to be able to parent a child through loss. You can do it with ordinary skills and the support of ordinary people around you. I hate to think that we set the expectations so high that we can barely meet them ourselves. Yeah. I admit that this core aspect of our faith where we worship a God who, you know, loses a child and that the whole context of loss that is built into the gospel narrative. And I think about the cross and loss and just how that is so pervasive throughout the scriptural narrative. And I find ironic strength in it that helps me to be sure as much as I can be sure that I can do this, this thing that somehow I've been called to do. Yeah. I tell my kids, you know, that 
The Psalms say that God is the defender of the widow and the fatherless, that their names are written in the book. You know, that's you right there, guys. Mm. See, you can claim that verse as your own. He has told you that he will defend you and that Jesus as a friend knew loss, that God as a father knew loss, that when we turn to God in our grief, that we find ourselves known and understood. And the frustration and the anger and the uh, disbelief, all of those things that we feel when we experience grief, we can trust that God understands that. And I think for kids where they feel very much alone in their story, and that's one place where I've just continually said, turn your gaze to Jesus. He gets it. And so in those moments where you feel most alone, that nobody understands how hard this is, know that Jesus gets it. Jesus understands how hard this is. Yeah. I've been intrigued that my daughter hasn't asked the, you know, why did God let this happen kind of question that I think sometimes has haunted me. And, you know, one of the big lessons pulling out of all this is that, you know, grief is the fruit of love. And I think sometimes I've appreciated how it seems uh, my kid gets that, that her sadness is often followed by just a, a simple expression of, I miss mom, but never in this kind of self-pitying way, but in a way that always just sounds like, you know, I love her and, you know, she's somehow still with me. This episode is brought to you by Tyndale and the new book, Hang On, Let Go. What to do when your dreams are shattered and life is falling apart. If you or someone you know is walking through a first-class crisis, whether a financial crisis, a health crisis, or a relationship crisis, Tyndale has just released a new book by best-selling author Frank Viola. The book is called Hang On, Let Go. What to do when your dreams are shattered and life is falling apart. The book is a time-tested field guide for navigating the worst storms of life when you feel like you're going through the ninth circle of hell. Check it out at hangonletgo.com or any online bookstore. Yeah, our kids, they're free to express that wide range of emotions. Like you're saying, the sadness, but also the love. And they're able to let them live side by side in their lives. And I really admire that about my kids, that they certainly grieve the loss of their father, but they also find a lot of joy in life. And it's not to the exclusion of grief. It's not pushing it away, but they're just learning to carry those things together in the same hand. And I feel like, wow, that's something that's taken me to adulthood to figure out. And I feel like I'm learning from them in a lot of ways. Yeah, you can keep going and at the same time feel this burden of loss. You can trust that God is good and also ask him why. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get those moments of like, I, I just can't do this. And But then you realize that's not really a choice or an option. And so that's where you have to right, drill down deep and God help me. And we do it. I was interested if you could say what have been one or two things that have been particularly helpful to you in your solo parenting? Are there resources or stuff that has been helpful? I think one of the people who has been most supportive to me in my solo parenting journey is my brother-in-law. Mm. <laughs> and early on, he realized that I wanted to be able to do this on my own. I wanted to be equipped 
And so when things started to break in my house, I'd ask him, could you come over and teach me how to do it? And I wanted to learn how to do it on my own, not so that I could become super self-sufficient, but just because I felt like this was a skill building moment for me. Another widow I had known said that after her husband died, she went to a community college and took a home improvement class Mm. because she just wanted to know what she was doing. And it wasn't like she was trying to replace her husband. She just felt like this was a real area of vulnerability for her emotionally. And maybe if she had some more skills, she would feel more confident. So last summer, my brother-in-law taught me how to wire lighting fixtures. And I rewired all of the lighting fixtures in my home. I replaced all the lighting fixtures. And he taught me how to pave a concrete patio. And I did it myself. And there are other things that he has done, just he has become a resource for me in that way. Like I don't look to him as a replacement dad for my kids, but I know that if I have a question about how to parent a boy, I can ask him because he won't try to replace me or diminish my abilities and act like the expert. (laughs) And I think for me, those kind of relationships where a person comes alongside of you and says, hey, you know, I've got this skill and I want to help you do your job better. Those relationships have just been invaluable to me as I parent my kids through loss. What about you? What has been helpful for you? Yeah, no, that's really awesome. I've appreciated the work of a book called Motherless Daughters by Hope Edelman, and she traces the stories of numerous women who have lost their moms throughout their life. And the big takeaway from the book is that what the daughter needs more than anything from the surviving parent is just stability. And I've internalized that, and I think it's it's been something of a, a mantra for me be stable or you know to tap into the the power of our faith trust god and that kind of place where if i can just be in christ as solid as i can be then that seems to be the thing that's going to to help my daughter most but i can stay faithful i can love i can you know honor the the legacy that my wife has has left and be a, a stable place for my daughter that as she grows and as she considers life that she can know she's safe and that she's loved and that she is cherished by her dad and by her mom and by God. And that that'll somehow be a source of strength for her. You know, back to our earliest comments, there is this resiliency that just carries these young kids into their adulthoods. And while we would so wish and want to be different, they can make it. Yeah. And I think whether you're parenting children through loss or uh, just parenting in general, that wisdom stands being a stable place for your kids, being open to their needs and exhibiting a selfless kind of love and dependence of God, interdependence with others in a community of support. These are the things that kids need to weather all of life's storms, whether it's the loss of a parent or a loved one, um, or just any of the other uncertainties that they may face. This is Surprised by Grief. We're exploring all the contours of 
love and grief, the way it shapes our soul, the way it's redeemed through the cross and how we live our lives in its wake. We're uh, thrilled today to welcome Abby Abbott. Abby's a mom of three, a wife, a pastor in Florida. She teaches, she writes, and for the past two years has been walking her own road of grief following the death of her mom, Marsha. Abby, thanks for being with us. We'd love to hear your story. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. My mom passed away just a little over two years ago from lung cancer, which the diagnosis in and of itself was a huge shock. She had never been a smoker, never lived with a smoker. And as we now know, the learning curve that we, our family, walked Lung cancer doesn't always hit those who have that kind of history in their past, and it took her really quick. It was seven months from the day of her diagnosis to the day we lost her. I'm wondering how your family talked about grief and suffering growing up. I mean, that's such a dramatic kind of diagnosis and short grief journey. Were you prepared for this in any way with conversations you'd had in the past with her or just in your family as you were growing up? To be honest, grief was not something that we talked a lot about in our house, in our family. We did walk through loss. I lost grandparents. And my mom actually walked her own grief journey, losing her mother to cancer at a young age. She was mid-30s when her mother passed away from a very quick cancer journey as well. But I was very, very little. I was two years old when she lost her mom. And so that wasn't something that I walked alongside her. And so for me, the shock of the diagnosis, the shock of, for lack of a better term, God not showing up in the way that we thought he would in healing her was very traumatic for me. I did not feel prepared for that. I believe fully, and I still do today, that God can heal, but I was not prepared for what it looks like to still trust God and still believe him when what we're believing he will do isn't actually what he does. Yeah. And your mom had lived that, losing her own mother. And I wonder what that looked like for her to process that woundedness, to have to do that spiritual wrestling so quickly, especially with this story that she had carried with her for her whole life. Absolutely. And she, you know, she was a mom of almost three. She was pregnant with my brother when her mom passed away. And I think at the time, because we were all so young, it was very much a just survival. Let's survive. Let's get through this. And then as the years passed, she did share how she saw God show up and give grace and peace and hope in the midst of that pain and that wounding. But it wasn't until during her journey with cancer that I started to hear her talk about the depths of that grief. Mm -hmm. What were some of those things that really were prominent for her or that uh, really struck a chord with you as you had those conversations? Yeah. (laughs) One of the ones that this makes me think of the most that kind of hits that emotional cord the most is actually sitting in the hospital in the last days with my mom. I will never forget her opening her bright blue, piercingly blue eyes and looking at me and just saying, you have to remember that even when you don't see that God is good, he is still good. And that was not something I knew how to process yet. I had lost friends. I've lost grandparents. I've seen other people walk through grief. But until I actually was walking through that grief, I didn't know what that meant to truly not see his goodness, but trust that he was still good, that he hadn't changed. And so hearing her say that, triggered, this is something I'm going to have to learn. I resonate with 
your journey and that my own wife's cancer was short too. And as you mentioned, some of these challenges to your faith, I'd love to just talk about like, what are some of the things that were unearthed that surprised you that when you think about your faith, how it looks different now in light of this experience? Mm, Yeah. For me, I think one of the biggest things I've had to relearn is what it looks like to worship God. I guess I can only speak for myself, but worshiping God is a lot easier when we can very easily pinpoint the ways He's showing up and the ways that we see Him being good. But in those depths of grief, I had to relearn what worship is founded in and what His goodness actually is, that my hopes for the happy ending don't have to line up with what is actually happening in order for God to be trustworthy. But I do feel like there's a way to be wounded and worshiping, and that struggle between the two is something that I've definitely grown in understanding how to show that worship and how to show gratitude and adoration for a God that I can trust even in the depths of my sorrow and grief. But I don't think I had ever been prepared for the connection between the pain in this world and God being a part of our pain with us, sitting in the pain with us because he grieved, he was in pain. And that just wasn't something that I think I wrapped my head around, that grief is part of God's story. What happens here on earth isn't his beautiful initial picture of what we would have. And so grief is not something he is a stranger to. He's in it with us. And he wants us to lean into him and and to understand that it's okay to be in pain. It's okay to ask him why and what now and how do I move forward? And I think in words, I understood that. I never actually understood the fullness of it until I had to walk it, though. Mm. We've talked a lot, Clarissa and I, about the effects of losing our spouses have had on our parenting, extended mm. family, and was curious, you mentioned being one of three and a mom of three, how how your mom's death has impacted those aspects of your life. Yes. So as far as like being one of three and siblings, those family dynamics, in some ways, we've had to re-navigate and learn. In some ways, mom was kind of the glue that held it together. When we all didn't know how to interact, she helped bring that all together. And so we're having to learn, like, we don't want to lose that. We don't want to lose the connection and the relationships. And we've had to learn how to have grace with each other along the way because our grief has looked very different. My grief and my sister's grief and my brother's grief and even my dad's grief has looked different along the way. And we're all feeling the deepness of our loss and the void of my mom, but we're displaying those depths of sorrow differently and having grace with each other along the way has been something we've all had to learn and grow in for sure. As far as being a mom of three, I very quickly felt like I had lost my identity. I don't know how to be a mom without my own mom. And so I spent a lot of time kind of sitting in the darkness of that, I think. If I can't look to my mom for the example, how do I do this? Mm. And then starting to come out of that cloud of The gift of that example in my mom, just because she is not here, that doesn't mean that that gift is now gone. The gift of continued making memories is gone, but the gift of learning from her, I can still do. And those things that I learned from her example are not gone. And so that gift that I was given has not been fully taken away because the gift of her still remains in so many different ways. 
Oh, I just love that. I read one of your Instagram posts, I think it was on Mother's Day, the first Mother's Day after you lost your mom, where you talked about the phrase, once a mother, always a mother. And I'm wondering, how do you, you know, if you're once a mother, always a mother, how do you bring your mom with you? How are you carrying her with you into your new life now without her? What a great, great question. Practically speaking, this sounds very silly, but for me, I actually wear her often, meaning we were very similar sizes. And so I actually have some of her clothes and some of her shoes. And on those days that I'm feeling much more insecure in my identity of a mother, those are the days I very quickly grab one of her sweaters or a pair of her boots. So I wear my mom. I love that. And it's, it's just so helpful. At first was just I had to almost to feel like I could get through the day. And now it's become a sense of strength in that there's a pair of boots of hers that I actually talked her into buying. And then I borrowed them every chance I possibly (laughs) could because I loved them. And then the moment they became mine, I didn't want them anymore. They felt borrowed because they were hers. They weren't supposed to ever actually be mine. And so those have now become my favorite pair of shoes, but it took a while for me to be able to wear them comfortably because it felt like, A, I don't know how to fill these shoes. B, I don't actually want them. They're supposed to still be hers. So that really is, it seems kind of silly, but that's a very tangible way that I bring her along with me. She was so great at writing things down. She gave me a cookbook in her handwriting and wrote down when she got the recipe and why it was a family favorite. And she wrote down little notes of where this teacup and saucer came from that she bought or that her mom bought years ago. And so I have these little pieces of paper with her handwriting. And that has reminded me of those moments of I can remember what she's taught me. And I can do the same for my kids. And so I've started trying to write things down for my kids, write the things I want them to remember or to know or to see. I feel like she was so good at seeing the beauty in the world around her. I don't want to forget to teach my kids what I learned from her. I want to pass that on to them. I love that. You know, part of normalizing grief, both in our culture and the church, is helping people to understand that all of those things, from wearing her clothes to wearing her boots to, you know, imitating some of her finer qualities, they're all a very natural and normal and healthy way of processing our loss. I'm also curious about your dancing, because Mm -hmm. uh, that's got to be a way that you have been able to just embody your grief experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. I teach for a dance studio um, here locally. And right after losing mom, I didn't want to dance. I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to sing. I didn't want to. The joy of that was very hard for me. And then it very quickly became a safe place for me. I would show up an hour, maybe two hours, sometimes three hours before my classes would start just to be in the safe space where I could move. And sometimes I would do it silently. Sometimes I would have music on and having a safe space that nobody was there to judge how I was moving or what I was feeling as I was moving was so powerful. And actually just recently, we did a dance show with the staff of the studio and the emphasis of the show was around our stories. How do we walk in our own shoes and how do we attempt to walk in someone else's shoes to feel what they've felt and walk alongside each other? And so I asked a couple of the girls on staff if they would be willing to help me create a piece about losing my mom. And it was one of the most 
vulnerable things I've ever done, yet also one of the most healing because to be able to, without words, have to stand in front of people and explain what I've walked through, to just be able to move alongside safe people that had been there through the journey with me and then show the power in being able to stand up at the end of that and continue to move forward through pain was so helpful to me to be able to use that as an expression of my own story. I love that. I'm just wondering, what are some uh, gifts that you have discovered in grief? You know, is there something Mm -hmm. that has surprised you about learning to hold joy and suffering in the same hand where you can say, well, Lord, this was something I never expected, but this has been a gift to me? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest ways is I have a new connection with people in the world around me that I never expected I'd be able to connect with in being able to be honest about grief, that I can say wounded is a part of me, but wounded is not all of me, that I can find hope and be hurting at the same time, that they can coexist, is something that I think the world hasn't heard enough of. And I've had so many people say something to me about what a breath of fresh air it is for them to recognize that it's okay to feel both. But also, that truly is something that we all need to hear. And I didn't realize how desperate we are to hear that we can be both. And so I think being a pastor's wife, I felt this pressure of, I have to get back. I have to be on my feet. I have to look like I've got it together. And I just couldn't do that. And then I had a friend look at me and say, is that what you have to do? Or do you have to show us what it looks like to not be okay? Because that's what grief is. And that just broke me because I didn't know how to do that well. But that is what I needed to do. I needed to let people see that we're not okay sometimes and that's okay. And so I think, honestly, that's one of the biggest gifts. And I'm hoping to pass that gift on to my kids that they can recognize you can both hurt and have hope. You can be joyful and sorrowful. You can hold all of that, like you said, in the same hand. And that is not negating the goodness of God or the cross or anything when you say that that pain is still very real. It's actually recognizing the need for the cross that much more. I love it. Jesus, when you gonna wake up? When you gonna wake up and calm this raging sea? Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate it, and leave us a review in iTunes. If you have feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. Surprised by Grief is a production of Christianity Today. It's produced by Mike Cosper. It was written by Daniel Harrell and Clarissa Mall. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Our music is by The Porter's Gate. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. So Jesus, when you're gonna wake up, when you're gonna wake up and calm this raging sea. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently.
called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.